0: Welcome to the IOD's Director's Briefing Podcast. This podcast is produced by the IOD's Policy Unit and provides timely updates, insights, and commentary on the key issues of the day impacting business leaders. Uh, Welcome to this COP26 debrief uh, where we'll be looking at the business implications. Uh, coming out from COP26, what is it that, that directors and leaders of organisations need to be doing to uh, to keep keep on track, but also to make the most of the opportunities and avoid and mitigate against the risks uh, that are coming for us all uh, as, as a result of many of the outcomes from COP26, uh, both in the UK, but also more broadly at a global level? Level. I'm welcoming at the moment. So my name is Andrew Griffiths. I am uh, chair of the IOD's International uh, Sustainability Task Force. Um, and I'll be I'll be hosting the panel discussion today. Uh, in a moment, uh, we'll uh, very quickly introduce the rest of our panelists um, but then we'll be talking through the high level COP26 outcomes, what you know, what happened that sort of at the international level, um, but then we're gonna progress pretty quickly onto looking at the business implications from COP26. You know, what are the greatest risks? What are the greatest opportunities? Uh, and where we go from there? And then we'll allow as much time as possible for audience Q and A, so do get your questions in and I'll start feeding those in at the earliest opportunity. Um, so our panel today, who are uh, here with me, uh, you've got me there on the on the top left hand side of the screen. Uh, Also with us is uh, John Scott, who is Head of Sustainability Risk for the Zurich Insurance Group. Uh, At the end there, we've got Alexandra Hall-Chen, who is uh, the Senior Policy Advisor at the IOD, who focuses on the areas of sustainability. And then to my left here, we have Gillian Karen-Cumberledge, Uh, Co-founder of Fidelio Partners and a board member of Chapter Zero, uh, which is an initiative by the World Economic Forum, if you're not familiar with it. Um, So very briefly, I'm going to summarize some of the high level outcomes from COP26. Um, And principally, you'll have seen uh, there are sort of the major tensions at the international level was uh, really on on two ends. So there was the push to get the nationally determined contributions to be as ambitious as possible, uh, which is the targets that each country sets for its own carbon reductions. And you'll have heard uh, sort of the analysis coming out off the back of that, um, demonstrating that really the, the COP26 summit, um, as uh, you know, def- the, in terms of the success metrics that they set for it in advance, fell short of the mark, and that was very apparent in uh, Alok Sharma's own reaction to, uh, to sort of closing the deal, where we, we all saw that video where he, he got a bit emotional at the end because of a watering down of some of the wording uh, within uh, the agreement from where they had wanted it to be. Uh, but nonetheless, there are a, a whole raft of successes within that in terms of the rule book being agreed on how um, particularly article 6 and other areas will be governed and how, what data is going to be needing to be shared what the uh, what the playbook really is in terms of how things will operate moving forwards but also significantly there was a change where where before every 5 years organizations had to uh, the national these sort of entities who make up The agreement had to come back with raised targets once every five years, which is why COP26 was so significant. It was five years on in principle from the Paris Climate Agreement in 2015, which was COP21. Um, Now they have to come back every year. So next year uh, in Sharm el-Sheikh in Egypt, uh, COP27, all of the nations have to come back with raised ambitions again. Um, which is significant because it's a much more condensed timeline and means that the opportunity for moving the needle is very much still there. Um, but the overall outcomes at the high, high level, um, many found to be disappointing in particular because the while the goal that we're all striving for is to keep below 1.5 degrees of warming, current estimates range that the, the current targets that have been set um, lead to between 1.8 and 2.4 degrees of warming um which is is not where we needed or wanted to be so more uh more of a push is very much needed um but i'd like to hand over now to uh alexandra to tell us a little bit about uh the iod's been sort of surveying members and interacting with members around how leaders are reacting to the outcomes from cop26
1: yeah thanks andrew and thanks for that overview um so we at the id put out a poll on linkedin in the aftermath of cop26 asking our community how successful they thought COP was, um, you know, how far, how far they thought that it went far enough uh, to to meeting climate goals. And actually, 87% of the almost thousand response, responses we got said that they didn't believe that the pledges made at COP26 went far enough. Uh, we've also done wider polling sort of throughout this year um, through our Policy Voice surveys. Um, we found back in March that uh, 80% of our Members agree that it's important for businesses to operate in a sustainable way, um, which is fantastic. Uh, But when we asked members uh, in more detail last month about specific plans and targets they've been making and setting with regards to moving towards net zero, uh, the the results were more mixed. So we found that uh, actually only about 28% of our members' organisations measure their carbon footprints. Only 27% have a well-worked-out plan to move towards net zero. So there's clearly a lot to be done there, um, and a lot the government and the ID itself can do to support members in their transition towards net zero. Thank
0: you. Um, and uh, John, coming to you in terms of for you, what were the you know the major outcomes that business leaders really need to be paying attention to?
2: So there were many additional outcomes of the ones you outlined. Um, uh, that were around the periphery of the main agreement at COP26. So you'll have seen or probably noticed in the press that a number of countries uh, announced net zero uh, plans, uh, uh, Kingdom of Saudi Arabia, uh, Australia, India, China, in fact, the, uh, the year before. So so these are all good things. And then there were also some agreements around uh, removing or reducing or f- uh, ending deforestation by 2030. Over 100 countries signed that. Uh, There was another similar uh, level of country involvement, another 100 countries plus uh, signed a a methane uh, reduction pledge, which uh, has got some short term benefits and powerful benefits in terms of reducing uh, global warming. So there were were quite a number of things swirling around the main agreement. But I think for businesses, there are kind of three areas of, of impact, really. One is around carbon pricing. Uh, I'm going to talk a little bit more about the impact of carbon pricing on business. Uh, the second is really around standardised data and that, what that will mean for you and your own business and how you use that data and how you might be required to generate it. And thirdly, about finance and, and risk sharing. How do you access uh, money to uh, sort of finance or fund the plans to decarbonize within your business? So, so I think just quickly on on carbon pricing. So. Just following on from uh, this this wonderful uh, agreement of, of Article 6 of the Paris Agreement, which is uh, really figuring out the rules for carbon trading between nations and uh, actually within a, between nations in a central pool of, of carbon credits, uh, that has big implications for business because the one of the ways we're going to fund decarbonisation uh, is really through the voluntary carbon markets. Uh, And that's a way of establishing a carbon price. And without a carbon price, without an economic driver to make the changes you want to change, you're really just going to be doing things out of the goodness of your heart and and not making money. And and that's just not going to be a successful outcome for you as business leaders. The second thing around standardized data, uh, especially here in the UK, but in many countries, there's going to be a requirement for companies to disclose uh, well, not just their carbon footprint, but the, the risks and opportunities related to climate change and how that affects their business. Uh, the reason why that's needed is because the investment community needs to understand where everybody is is going with this and who to invest in and who to, um, if not divest, certainly um, uh, decrease the level of investment. Uh, so so that's going to be coming away and in some places that'll be mandatory uh, in the UK there's plans to do that shortly uh, and that's going to be a huge amount of effort for many of you uh, listening into this call and then the third thing about finance and risk sharing um, there is a wall or a tidal wave of ESG investment uh, coming uh, it's already there lots of people want to invest in ESG there's lots of reasons for that uh, lots of drivers. Uh, But it's how to connect that big money. I mean, they talked about the GFANs, the Glasgow Financial Alliance for Net Zero being over 130 trillion of assets focused on getting to net zero. But it's how to link that wall of money with the small projects that maybe your company or your region or your county or your uh, municipality is engaged in. And and that's an entirely different scale of activity, and that's turning big money into real action on the ground. So I think those are the three things for me really, which are, are most impactful for business. Thank you, John.
0: Um, and Gillian, you know, from a, a, at a board level and, and with directors, what conversations should they be having? What you know, what, what should boards be doing now um, as a result of some of the the outputs from COP?
3: Well, thank you, and and thank you for that sort of introduction. I think that was very helpful. Um, Maybe just a quick word on Chapter Zero, just to set the context. Um, We um, are um, the UK chapter of... the, what is now becoming a sort of a global organisation, Chapter Zero. And our members are predominantly FTSE 100 and FTSE, um, and across the FTSE. So we have about um, 1,800 members. I think 60% of the FTSE 100 will have at least one board member. So we've got quite a good sort of sense of, you know, where boards are. And one of the things, like sort of comments I just make on kind of the outcome of COP, um, I think we were always... Looking very carefully, we were a little concerned that that you know it could be a loss of momentum, but we do feel the momentum, and I think that's the sort of a comment I'd, I'd, I'd make. That um, you know, business was very present at COP26, more present than it's been um, before. To the extent that there were some quite negative sort of press articles about business being overrepresented, which you know one, one can debate. So I think the first point I, I'd like to make is we see this being very firmly on the board agenda. Um, And, you know, we see um, certainly larger boards, uh, boards of larger companies, but I think that's sort of cascading down, um, thinking very hard about climate change competence. What does this actually mean for sort of board composition? Um, And and also practically what the board should be doing, because I think in many organisations, there's a lot of really hard work that's going on at executive level. But you're now beginning to see the board really think through. You know, where are there? Where is the board's point of intervention? You know, how can the board contribute to strategy? What should the board be thinking about in terms of risk, as as, as, as was mentioned, and also reporting? And I, and I think, you know, those are all sort of positives. I think there's also any anybody who's sitting on a board, and particularly the board of a public company, will also be thinking. Probably about the liability aspect, and and you know you hear the term greenwashing band- bandied around, and my sense is nobody wants to enter into greenwashing, but you can see that you know investors have become very vigilant about um, what good looks like and what best practice looks like, and I think you know any board director does need to think through very carefully, um, you know, can they demonstrate that they've really tried to do the right thing here, um, but also that the disclosure is consistent. And so those are just some of the themes, but perhaps a slightly more positive n- note because I think maybe you know one of the big drivers particularly for sort of large quoted companies are their shareholders. And 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 I think you know those shareholders are making it very very clear that they're you know investing um you know that they, they have a carbon footprint and and they want their portfolio to reflect that. Um I think that does raise and we might come back to this sort of quite nuanced questions about is divestment the right response? It might be the right response for a particular investor, but not necessarily for climate change. But uh, um, so I think the, the the sort of the pressure from the markets is very very consistent and very you know and and it's definitely there. And that's a big driver, I think, for major quoted corporates. So maybe just to add that to the mix.
0: Yeah, uh, absolutely. We were up in COP twenty six throughout two weeks. And one of the big pieces of feedback we got from sort of UN negotiators who are sort of helping facilitate and bring together the different countries was that the, they'd never seen the level of business involved. They'd never seen the number of CEOs at a COP summit um, before ever um, and the amount of engagement. But actually, that it was it was very positive engagement and it was people lobbying for the right things and pushing for the right things. Um, in 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 trying to drive and move the needle further and trying to increase ambition uh, more than anything, which um, I think it's it, it is a very positive thing, and it's sort of you know I think there's lots of examples of how in many ways sort of industry and business is going to move ahead of where uh, regulation and legislation it has pushed so far. Um, and so I guess for, from that sort of regulation and legislation perspective, Alex, coming sort of across to you again, what are some of the major pieces of uh, you know, regulation, legislation that either have been announced um, uh, you know, around the COP summit, or um, you know, we have a strong inkling might be on the way for things like the Better Business Act or and other, other things around those sorts of ideas. What, what, what would you say?
1: Yes, we've actually had um, what I would say is almost a raft of um, announcements both before COP, you know, over the summer. For instance, the government announced uh, a change to the way that it will oversee the awarding of contracts uh, for government services. So if you're bidding for, um, uh, you know, to deliver services that are worth more than £5 million, you have to demonstrate, you know, net zero plans. Of course, we had the net zero strategy um, about a month ago, which had, uh, you yeah, know, sort of a raft of policy commitments um, most of which I would say, actually, you know, in terms of the government's overall net zero strategy, a lot of it will fall on, on businesses. You know, there, there are government sort of grants to try and stimulate um, innovation in the private sector, but they are very heavily reliant on, on I would say, the private sector to do still a lot of the work towards net zero. Um, of course, during COP, we had the announcement from, from the Chancellor that FTSE, 350 companies and all financial institutions in the UK will, by 2023, have to publicly um, so, you know, publish their net zero uh, strategies, uh, which we see is highly likely to have a really big ripple effect, which I'm sure we'll come back to later. Um, and in terms of looking forward to the future, I think you mentioned the Better Business Act is something that the IOD is is pushing for. and We want to see an amendment to the Companies Act, to Section 172 specifically. That means that... Uh, that boards will have to consider environmental impact um, as a sort of core part of their duty. Uh, so we see that as hopefully something that will be coming coming down the line alongside probably other things, which I'm sure we'll get back to.
0: Absolutely. And, and yeah, I think the... The ripple effect that well, we were talking about before before we started the event, in terms of the the, the number of you know already a significant number of uh, larger institutions and financial institutions had set net zero targets and strategies already, um, and already before COP, actually there was a ripple effect coming, and that's one of the biggest things that's only we've been seeing. So I'm, I'm director of an organization called Planet Mark, and a number of our members. Uh, have received emails and notifications from an array of different sort of larger entities where even where the change for the 2023 um, sort of thing you might not think that it affects you because you're an SME or you're, you're not a listed company you're not a financing institution but the ripple effect that comes down because those organizations have to think about their scope three which large part is their supply chain if you are the client of or your client client or your client to client is one of these institutions, which in large and in most cases they will be, they will be coming and asking for your carbon footprint. Um, and so we've seen um, Microsoft and Salesforce both have in their supplier contracts now a requirement uh, that you have to have net zero strategy in place within the next couple of years. Uh, Tesco sent out an email two weeks before COP26 saying we need you to have uh, your carbon footprint by the end of the year, three months notice. Um, We need you to have a net zero target by the end of next year, Um, a science-based target with a 50% reduction by 2030 by the end of 2023 at the latest. Um, And we need you to switch to a renewable energy provider if you haven't done so already. Um, And so those organisations who are receiving an email like that from what is probably one of their biggest clients and they're already on track, they've already got their carbon footprint, they've already been making progress on carbon reductions. They see that and they go, brilliant, jobs are good, I'm, I'm safe, I'm secure, here, here's my data, off we go. But if you hadn't actually done a carbon footprint, you hadn't actually started taking steps here, it, put you, it puts a major part of your business at risk, um, because you could lose that client, they will be looking for alternatives for people who have made those steps. Um, and that, that's certainly one of the biggest ripple effects we've already seen coming through, um, even in instances where you might not be going for a government contract that's worth $5 million, uh, or more. You might not be a listed company, but if one of your clients or suppliers or you know, someone in your community, in your network or value chain is… Then, uh, then they'll be coming to you, um, which sort of speaks to the risks uh, and things associated from coming out from COP. And I wondered whether, uh, John or Gillian, you, you had any thoughts around, for, uh, you know, from a risk management perspective, what are the key issues and areas that boards should be sort of sitting down and discussing and, and coming up with an action plan for?
2: So, Uh, Yeah, that all sounds great, doesn't it? That uh, somebody asks you to become carbon neutral and then suddenly overnight you are. Um, I'm afraid that doesn't work that way. And any one of you who runs business will know that yourself because you'll have your own suppliers. And in many cases, what you deliver either as a service or a product just intrinsically is high carbon, whether it's food, uh, whether it's a component of infrastructure, something to do with cement or iron and steel, uh, or something that just uses electricity or energy in, in some form, especially um, uh, fossil fuel. Uh, so, so it's enormously difficult to create uh, alternatives or substitutes for something that you've you've maybe done all your, you know, it's your whole raison d'être as as not only as your business, but the sector in which you operate and what your suppliers expect from you. So it's just it's not as straightforward as just having a plan. Uh, and saying, oh, I'm going to be net zero. It's about how do you actually make some really big, in some cases, totally different plans for your business. Like you won't be doing the same thing you've been doing maybe for generations if you're a family-owned business. You might be doing something entirely different. And that, I think, puts the shivers up probably most business uh, directors' spines. Uh, I think it's very, very challenging. Um, So the risks that come from that are are manifold. Uh, they're, They're existential risks in many cases. Um, and I think one of the other big risks, I think, just a cause after that is a lot of the focus has been on supply. Uh, I think you mentioned it yourself about, you know, it's in the supply chain, you know, it's the supply is your scope three. Actually, it's not just about supply, it's about the demand. And demand for products and services, especially low carbon products and services, which intrinsically may be very expensive early on, is likely to be very low. So it's this classic, you know, business growth dilemma and um, the, the risk of failing to grow because you cannot supply an economically viable alternative to existing carbon intensive products and services in the marketplace. So I think uh, there's a great onus here on not just finance, not just on business, but on government as well and policymakers more broadly to create the right sort of legislation and regulation that encourages uh, the the delivery of low carbon process services. So think, for example, with low carbon cement or low carbon uh, steel for infrastructure or for the built environment. You know, having some kind of building regulation that demands a, a certain sort of uh, carbon intensity per square meter of a building. Well, of course, that would incentivize the, the architects of those buildings, the uh, developers of those uh, buildings, uh, and the the purchasers of those buildings to adhere to those kind of regulations. And, and that's the sort of thing that we need to put in place, the whole framework uh, between the the goal, which is net zero, which is what the 1.5 degree target, um, uh, which the IPC scientists have set, the the ambitions that have been talked about uh, publicly at, at places like the COP26, and then this delta in between, which is the messy place which we're all in as business people to actually change our businesses to truly become low carbon.
0: Thank you, John. Uh, Gillian, do you have any thoughts around the risks that, that, that people need to be thinking about?
3: Well, I think, you know, the business risk is, is, is apparent. I mean, I think you've articulated it very clearly. It's it, it, it it's very substantial, and the visibility is 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 it is really challenging. Um I would just and I know we'll talk about sort of the opportunity, but but you know, if you, I guess, if you look at the response to COVID, if you look at the, you know, and also you look at particular um, sectors. So my background is automotive, and I don't think anybody would have expected the automotive um, sector to be where it is today. You know, it's moved tremendously quickly in a in a kind of a uh, perhaps quite a jumpy and and a, a way, and regulations obviously played a role, but it has moved towards electric vehicles, you know, and, and so there's, you know, that's the, 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 there is a sort of a, a momentum there. Um, so I think, you know, business can respond. And 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 um, I think to your question about risks, um, the, the part the board can play is being able to think more broadly. Um, and I think, you know, any business that, that does have an, a board of external directors would do well to think about how can they bring perhaps experience and learning from other relevant um, industries and frameworks for helping to think this through. Um, I do think um, one risk perhaps we haven't really developed fully is access to capital and access to finance, because the other aspect is, you know, I think Mark Carney's done a phenomenal job of sort of greening the the, the financial system, but practically you are going to see... um, access to insurance access to um bank uh, lending to loans to 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 equity um curtailed if 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 you know if you're going to um Uh, pollute somebody's carbon footprint essentially so I think that's a very big risk that that sort of will be part of the ripple effect that that, that you described and then I do think just going back to the point I made earlier I think particularly for quoted companies there's a real risk about disclosure and communication and I think um, you know really picking up I guess in John's point about the clarity of the you know the steps that you're going to take but also being very careful and clear how you're going to communicate that. And that's probably not over-communicating because once, you know, information's in the public domain, it's in the public domain. So I think there is a, a sort of a, a communication aspect of this as well, particularly for companies that are very much in the public eye.
0: Absolutely, yes. No, and uh, I think you touched on transport and things, and obviously one of the announcements during COP26 on the transport day, on the Wednesday of the second week, was uh, around... You know the additional thing people will be broadly familiar with. There's a 2030 deadline for new sales of petrol or diesel vehicles. 2035 for hybrid. Uh, but now there's an extension to that, uh, which is a 2040 deadline for heavy goods vehicles HGBs sales in the UK. Um, and I know that sort of the transport area is an area where I do think that I think it's a good example of actually how regulation can set a longer term. Path quite well by by giving saying a 2040 deadline is coming in place for this, which gives a clear signal to the market that then leads to the market actually moving much faster, um, as you say. Because when the announcements initially came out, I, I remember sort of hearing you know some car manufacturers were up in arms and sort of saying you can't this is that's so fast you can't do that, um, and then others went yeah no problem we've been preparing for this for the last decade and actually we're going to get there by 2025. Um, and we're seeing that the, the switch happen very quickly there. And one example from the, the we did a sort of a tour of the UK uh, and visited sort of various places in Northern Ireland. Um, we saw how uh, sort of the right bus company who made the world's first double decker hydrogen bus was made in Northern Ireland. I had no idea Northern Ireland had that uh, feather in its cap, uh, nor that many of the London buses that you see are in fact made in Northern Ireland. I didn't realise that either before this, but um, talking to their managing director, he sort of, we did a tour of the factory there and and 30% of their production this year will be zero emission vehicles, either either hydrogen or electric. Um, But he said that next year, they forecast it will be 70%. And the reason for that is that the, the economic imperative is, has already begun to flip. Um, and we spoke with the CEO of, of TransLink who oversees sort of the, the public transportation in Northern Ireland in large part. And he said that this year or next year will be the last year they ever put in an order for a diesel bus because they, you know, with, a, with an asset that has a longer lifespan like a bus where they usually depreciate over about 15 years, they anticipate that the costs of fuel, carbon, pollution, all of these sorts of things mean that those, a diesel bus will no longer be viable in 10 years' time, 10, 15 years' time. So they already have to start you know, transitioning, even where the upfront cost of an electric or hydrogen bus is still uh, quite a bit higher. Um, and so I wonder whether, you know, that we're seeing this already sort of taking place in certain sectors. Are there any, where do you think sort of the next sort of big pushes will come from? What, what sectors are going to sort of really feel the weight of uh, sort of a need for a speedy transition? We've talked about finance is moving quite quickly, but are there any particular sort of hotspots where you think this will pinch first?
2: Yeah, and uh, just let me take that on. I mean, there's some very obvious ones in the carbon intensive so So energy broadly... Uh, and oil and gas, uh, the role within energy. But, I mean, the move from fossil fuels to renewable energy, electrification more broadly, but, of course, electrification doesn't solve all, all the uh, requirements of, of industry. So uh, replacement by low-carbon or zero-carbon fuels like uh, hydrogen, low-carbon hydrogen, either green or blue hydrogen, uh, and biofuels. Uh, and in the case of the airline industry, sustainable airline fuels. But that's, that's a well-understood transition. I think the challenge, again, as I mentioned earlier, is it's not just about supply, it's about demand. So that means uh, we need transition in other industries. So so the other big area is, uh, just as was saying, is around transportation. So it's not just personal transportation, but it's supply chains. So it's not just vehicles. Uh, it's... Uh, Ships uh, and the shipping industry has got a massive challenge. They've just uh, come up with the Poseidon principles, which is a, um, a set of principles to decarbonize the, the shipping value chain, uh, which is which is very challenging because uh, again it's about supply and demand. Um, and, and in fact, airlines, which is you know, some, you know, actually it's quite surprising when you actually look at the global emissions data. Airline emissions are only about one and a half, maybe two percent of total emissions whereas uh, vehicles for transportation you know in the streets around us is more like uh, getting on to 15%. So um, whilst whilst well, as far as i understand in the airline industry they're really struggling to develop um, electric uh, uh, flight um, engines or motors that that can go any uh, distance so short haul that might work but probably not long haul uh, not within a 30 year time frame and then similarly uh, hydrogen uh uh, engines that can transport jets a long distance or, or planes a long distance. That's, that's again, out with the 30-year timescale. So, and then in iron and steel and the so-called harder to decarbonize industries that, that create the products uh, that underpin infrastructure. And then in agriculture, uh, agrochemicals, uh, petrochemicals and agriculture more broadly, I mean, we need to feed over 7 billion people on the planet, Um and there, there's huge changes required not only just in uh, the sort of diets we uh, choose to eat, but but also how we shift from a sort of essentially oil-based farming to regenerative farming techniques. And these these are, are not simple things to put in place. They're really complicated, and and accelerating that transition. Uh, relies on having many different transition pathways and these transition pathways are not silver bullets they're not the same everywhere they look different in different economies they look different even within the same industry so so going back to transportation evs is just not the solution on its own there has to be multiple different uh, approaches to dealing with different types of transportation so
0: did anyone else want to add one uh, question So sort if of- to sort of delve at slightly more specifically, Chris Fry, uh, thank you for putting in your questions. Do use the Q&A tool, I am looking at it, um, was around you know, the wall of ESG investments and linking it into real world projects is an area of great interest for Chris. Um, and he's sort of asking around you know, which business sectors and areas of the economy do we think that there will be the most rapid breakthrough in in this private and blended green finance uh, coming through. What, where do we, you know, where are you know uh, the sort of banks and funders and asset managers seeing the low-hanging fruit?
3: I would say? Can I just answer that for a slightly? Um, I was going to pick up on one point. Um, I mean, you, you were saying where the next breakthrough is going to be. I think for me, the biggest breakthrough is the moving away from you know this was a problem for the oil and gas sector to actually this is all sectors. And I know when Chapter Zero sort of started only two years ago. There was a sort of a little bit of a, you know, you could see there was a, some directors were deeply familiar with the issues because they have been grappling with emissions, you know, for, for, for many years, automotive, um, extractives, etc. And others were sort of not really sure whether this was you know, relevant. And I, and I think that's gone. You know, I mean, every sector realises for all the reasons that we've been talking about that, you know, they're part of this. And and so maybe partly to that, just from, from, from our perspective, I mean, um, both within Chapter Zero, where we, uh, you, you know, have a very broad range of membership, we see all quoted companies being interrogated by their investors on, on, on this subject. And um, I think it is challenging in that, you know, we're still at a stage where investors will have very different approaches, be focusing on different things, want the data in a different way. You know, there's, there's 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 I'm sure we'll come back to the sort of the quality of reporting and 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 data. Um, but I, I think um you know there's there's a, a wave of, of of funding. And we're also seeing this um, I, I mean for example wearing my Fidelio hat some of our private equity clients are also almost being held to account by their own investors. And you're seeing them sort of thinking through in terms of ESG reporting and to, to, to their own investors. So if I could just sort of say, I think this is very, very broad. Um, and yes, there will be sort of sectors and opportunities. But I think what's really exciting about where we are now is that it's really spread through the whole economy and the whole, probably because of the finance system, really, at the end of the day. Um, and and I, I think that's a really exciting time. And that for me personally, it actually gives me some hope that that you're seeing a real breadth of 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 sort of commitment and 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 creativity and innovation
0: coming through. Absolutely, uh, John or, or, uh, or Alex, did you want to say any more around sort of where you see sort of the investment and sort of finance movements?
2: So, so, so I totally agree that it's very broad-based. I mean, the the um, if you look at all the fundamental services that all economies require around the world, and the ones I mentioned: energy, transportation, supply chain, infrastructure, farming, food petrochemicals, you know, it's its everything. All, all economies rely to some extent on that. But of course, not all economies are the same. And if I just focus on the UK for a moment to answer this question, in the UK, it's very much a service-based economy now. We, we um, many decades ago, uh, basically uh, off, offshored or outsourced our, our heavy industry to other uh, fast-growing emerging markets. So, so when you look at the task of decarbonising the UK, which is in the UK uh, government strategy, it, it's largely around energy. So there's some interesting things in energy. Um, uh, I mentioned hydrogen and uh, carbon capture and storage as part of that with with blue hydrogen, but there's also offshore wind and uh, green and uh, green hydrogen. I mean, hydrogen turns out to be one of those things that enables uh, renewables to um, operate anywhere really I mean the challenge with the renewables is often that the wind or the the Sun are far away from population centers uh, and so the challenge is getting the electricity from the generating plant to the to the area of demand so having uh, a fuel like hydrogen produced in situ through electrolyzing seawater using renewable energy uh, is a fantastic way of suddenly making that energy transportable, so that the, the whole energy sector is a really super interesting one in terms of opportunities. I think the other really interesting space is, um, I mean, it sounds a bit mundane, but uh, it's, it's heating and cooling of domestic and commercial premises. That's a, that's a massive charge in the UK. Uh, we have something. I think somebody told me once we had something like 30 million houses. Uh, We've got less now than 30 years. That's a million houses a year. We need to sort of change to uh, better insulation, better energy, better energy efficiency uh, and different forms of heating, not gas central heating. Um, So whether that's some form of uh, hydrogen bled into the methane mix, uh, that's moving it back to the old town gas. For those of you old enough to remember town gas before natural gas Um, and uh, or whether it's things like um, heat pumps, whether air-source heat pumps or, or ground-source heat pumps. But, of course, that's not a, a straightforward uh, transition. If you think of your own house, probably, unless you live in a very modern uh, building, uh, you know the challenges of transforming a building like uh, the IOD uh, 116 premises into uh, underfloor heating and uh, low-grade heat from a, a heat pump Uh, That's very different from the kind of heat that comes from a a fossil fuel boiler that's coming uh, through radiators, for example. And if you think about the skill set and the opportunities for people who may have been plumbers plumbing in um, gas central heating systems, actually now the skill set is about electrical. It's about not just plumbing. It's about general building skills. And, and actually, in my more optimistic moments, I think that's a fantastic opportunity for people um, in in many different walks of life to develop new business opportunities in that kind of space. And then lastly, of course, there's this whole thing around agriculture and around um, transportation. So some great opportunities in those areas, too.
0: Yeah. And I, I think at the moment, it's almost uh, from, from what I've been seeing, there seems to be there's more... Uh, uh, more demand for sort of you know, strongly ESG rated and acc- accredited uh, sort of investments than there there is uh, there is currently supply um, and and uh, I remember at an event at COP twenty six I of hearing from a vertical farming. Uh, solution provider, where you know they went out for investment and they were three hundred times oversubscribed um, in terms of the, they weren't actually able to accommodate everyone who wanted to put money in, um, which is a remarkable state of affairs uh, for, for us to be in. But bringing things bringing things down in terms of uh, you know if someone's a, a very small business and is, is resource strapped, doesn't have lots of time, doesn't have necessarily you know a whole board with external advisors and things like that. What about for a, you know, for a small business? Um, you know, what should the, so, you know, the the directors of very small companies and, and medium sized enterprises be doing to equip themselves? What training or things should they be accessing to, to be able to raise their awareness of stuff? Um uh, and, and what should be the the what, what are the low hanging fruit that they really need to be seizing upon and, and making progress with? Um, Alex, I'll come to you at the end there.
1: Yeah, thanks. I um, just wanted to mention, actually, that the IED has recently partnered with the Royal Scottish Geographical Society um, and uh, we're now really pleased to announce that we're offering um, through, through the society um, training that is on specifically, um, is on moving to, to net zero on sustainable business practice, uh, free of charge to all ID members. So we would really strongly encourage any members who are interested in this space and particularly those who don't know where to start on this journey
0: have a look on our website and please do sign up. Very good point. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so there, there you go. Right, go and look on the IOD uh, website. I think we'll show a link later. Can, can, can I, I also
3: it. chip in there that um, Chapter Zero is also a we're non profit, so it's a resource that's open to all uh, board members and we we too similarly try to support our, our membership through we have a directors climate journey and tools that um, for, for for board members uh, for for tackling so um i guess the point is there's a lot of very good resource that's that, 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 that's available and and actually a lot of it is is available to membership organizations and and um you know one doesn't necessarily need to, in the first instance to turn to very highly paid advisors, but mm. but, but, but there is a good resource available
0: and, and what would people say as the low-hanging fruit, like uh, I know mentioned earlier, you know, in, the, in Tesco's email out to all of their suppliers, they said, for crying out loud, switch to a renewable energy provider if you haven't already, because that's one you know, big low-hanging fruit to decarbonize uh, you know, part of, it, sort of scopes one and two, at least, um, emissions, but also often save money in the process. Um, are there any other sort of pieces of low-hanging fruit that, that smaller companies might want to take advantage of um, early doors?
2: I think you touched on it with your carbon footprinting work. Well the carbon footprint is not climate risk it's, it's it's some very basic you know baby steps to understanding you know how your your, your business or your your company is, is where, where the carbon intensity lies but But you know reducing business travel that's quite a good one. Um, you know we've just instituted that uh, in zurich and in, uh, in September we announced a 70 percent reduction in in business travel. Uh, so that has quite a big impact on our business. We're a pretty low carbon footprint type of uh, services business, anyhow. But that was one of the biggest sources of uh, for, uh, of carbon. Um, as you said, uh, very. It's not. It's not immediately straightforward. It is in the UK relatively straightforward to shift to renewable energy uh, suppliers. But in some countries, that's actually very very difficult to do. So depending on the nature of the business and where it's located, that that's a more difficult ask in some places than others. Um, I I think, um, you know, changing your policy around company cars uh, or encouraging people to use public transport and giving your your, uh, employees sort of subsidies or or other reasons to encourage them to use shared uh, transportation, you know, that all reduces the individual carbon miles. Uh, And then I think some, you know, really simple sort of operational stuff that, that, you know, flows straight through to the bottom line pretty quickly. So this is quite attractive stuff to to spend time on and think about, even though it's in some ways sort of hygiene factors, uh, are things like what are you doing in terms of use of paper, um, you know, uh, single-use plastics and all these other things. So you can become much more sustainable, more broadly within your business quite quickly, just with a little bit of thought. Absolutely.
0: Anyone else want to touch on anything? I think that was a very good summary.
3: Absolutely. Can, can I just add, perhaps, from the board perspective, a couple of things that boards can be doing. I think your point about the sort of that the, the carbon footprint of the board is 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 very well taken. I mean, we're seeing that the majority of boards are thinking through: do we need to have all board meetings in person? I mean, obviously, they're very glad to meet in person again after COVID, but 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 it it has, and certainly international boards, I think, probably will you know, change some of their policies so that not everybody's flying all the way around the world for every, sing- every single board meeting. And in fact, some investors have even started to talk about, you know, how they'll scrutinise at the AGM remuneration that actually scrutinising individual carbon footprints might might be something of the future. And that, that would be quite a wake up call, I, I, I think. And the other thing that we're seeing a number of boards doing is making sure that they're actually, well, A, that obviously this is Firmly on the agenda, so that you're actually devoting um, board time to, to, to thinking through some of the challenges, and b that you're actually enlisting the sort of the the support and the insight and the innovation of the organisation. That I think very often there's a whole host of very practical ideas from within the organisation that you might not sort of you know identify from the board table, but but, but actually there's, there's a lot around. Employee engagement. There's this a linkage there, which is perhaps much stronger than I think anybody had initially thought through.
0: Absolutely. I, 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 we did a visit uh, to some garden centres uh, just uh, a couple of weeks back, and they'd, they had sort of they went out for an employee champions scheme, and in, in each of their garden centres, Squires Garden Centres, each one of their garden centres, they uh, had a volunteer. Uh, champion someone who was going to collate stuff together and actually simply the act of putting someone in charge of it and saying to all of their employees go to that person with your ideas they suddenly uncovered uh, a vast array of suggestions and the the, the sort of champions were like I've never had so many people coming up to me within the space of a one-week period everyone everyone came up with their ideas and these were ideas that were just sitting there untapped up until that point, just because people sort of haven't had an outlet for for it, but everyone had ideas and suggestions, which ultimately, you know, that's you know, d- drives engagement in a really major way and, and drives um getting you know getting people engaged and involved and, and wanting to be a part of it. So, um uh, yeah, I, I think the employee engagement thing is 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 absolutely critical.
1: sorry to interrupt, but I just want to come in on a point that you were making earlier about some low hanging fruit and to pick up on something that that John mentioned around business travel, it's just made me think that, you know, there's a wider move, you know, in, in the business world towards greater acceptance of hybrid and, and remote working. Um, this isn't, you know, firstly, we know that it's great for employee engagement, in many cases, employee performance, um, certainly staff, you know, attraction and attention in the in the current sort of squeezed labour market. Um, but there's also a really interesting point there to be made around this being very low-hanging fruit for reducing emissions, um, not only in business travel, but but in, in individuals being able to, to you know, cut down the commuting particularly if, if um, you're in an area that's not particularly more served by public transport so just a sort of quick thought that that might be an easy consideration for businesses um, yeah. who could yeah. embrace that and breathe the water.
0: yeah and no, I think that's a good suggestion that's one, one top tip on that I'd say for bit, from planet Mark's experience, is one of the realizations we had, Planet Mark has sort of been a remote business sort of forever, but had one mandatory office day. And that historically was the day when we would do our big team meetings, but actually coming back now where we have an optional office day um, for for people to come together, we've actually flipped it and we've said that there is, there is one day in particular where we have to work remotely. And that is the day on which all team meetings and things like that um, take place. Um, And, that works much better because if we were trying to do it all you know, in the office, inevitably, there's always some people tuning in remotely. And hybrid meetings are the worst of all worlds. Uh, because the people who are remote don't necessarily feel like they can input as easily and smoothly. If you've got multiple groups of people tuning in via it, so it gets even more awkward and actually sort of dedicating the team time or, or meetings time for uh, days where we were all remote it levels the playing field and particularly where you working operating internationally it puts everyone on an even playing field in terms of being able to input into discussions and things like that more easily as long as they've got you know a, a decent connection to the internet um, but also that on, on the days where we're in the office we actually protect it from too many meetings because the whole point of being in the office together is that we want to have those sort of more casual conversations and those sparking conversations that come up as people are working rather than um but whereas if you just fill up people's stays with meetings they might as well have been at home <laughs> um so allowing those sort of opportunities for interaction things like that was one of the, our big things um and it does remote working does improve um sort of the carbon footprint when you factor in commuting um in winter when you're heating lots of employees houses rather than one building on if you're just looking at scopes one or two it's emissions yes yeah. If scopes one and two emissions, then it, it, it can lead to an increase in that. But it's a really, it's one of my favorite examples now of depending on what you measure, you can make very different decisions. Because if you're just measuring your scopes one and two, which is the fuel that you burn and the energy that you use, then it can look like actually it's slightly less efficient for everyone to be remote working because of the heating issue during winter. Um, whereas, but as soon as you factor in commuting, particularly in places like London where people commute quite long distances. Um, it, it flips it, yes. um, and
3: I guess what'll be interesting are the implications for businesses. You know, I mean, some of your members will be businesses that provide office space, and and and, and for London transport, for example. And I, I mean, I, I think the sort of COVID implications for public transport are are not good for. Um, uh, Decarbonisation and, and 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 it's obviously something. You know, so these things are multifaceted, and and I guess to John's point at the beginning, good regulation is going to be really important at the end of the, the, the day on some of these these, these bigger issues. But uh, um, but also the data, as, as you say, that 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 actually having clear understanding of what, what kind of what the baseline is and is, 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 is really important.
0: It helps you to make decisions. Yes. Um, I mean, so I, I, one of my favourite sort of little sort of jokes that I'll do now is saying, you know, imagine if your CFO asked you to cut money in your budget uh, and uh, said, I don't want you to measure anything. I don't want you to set any targets. I just want you to come up with a list of things that we could do that will help us save money. And that will be what we show to our investors and they'll be very happy and pleased with us no <laughs> and so, exactly but that's currently the way many organizations are managing their carbon is is through sort of hit and hope well we'll do it but here's, here's a wonderful list of actions and things that we've taken we haven't actually measured anything we haven't set any targets we don't know whether or not we've succeeded and so sort of a key key thing but you can't manage what you don't measure and you can't progress towards something you haven't set a target for um is a is a very interesting one um, just coming on, and do, do continue putting in questions to the QA tool for people tuning in online here. Um, but we've got one from John Cross around where do we see the public sector in all of this? Does anyone have any thoughts around how the public sector uh, will need to adapt?
2: Yeah, let me let me have a go at that. Uh, at least start off on it. Yeah, no, I mean, the public sector obviously is a big matter of. Uh, Carbon emissions in in all societies. Um, actually, just uh, I don't know if you saw the news item the other week about the uh, the military. The military uh, actually uh, a, a huge emitters of of carbon dioxide, and that's a that's a huge part of the the public estate, if you like. Um, so I think what what goes to private sector definitely goes the government too, and I think uh, government have a, an extra, especially local government have an extra. Um, challenge, if you like. I mean, they've got plenty of challenges on their plate already. But but really, when I was talking about this sort of link between the, the wave of VSG investment through institutional investors getting into smaller scale projects, uh, I think local government have a huge role to play in that in terms of thinking about how they decarbonize their own Operations, their own uh, infrastructure, uh, and actually can really be the um, sometimes can be the sort of lens to work with private sector to to really change the the, the low carbon infrastructure around us. So let me give you one practical example. Uh, I know uh, there's at least one large energy company who's working with uh, local authorities to think about how to um, roll out um, charging points for electric vehicles in urban environments. You know that really depends enormously on on local borough uh, gov- uh, council support and uh, local government support and mayoral support in, depending on the, cu- the kind of city you're in so yes I think uh, local government in particular big government you know uh, national government of course set the sort of the strategy um, they sometimes get a bit lost when it comes to the plans and the implementation but it, you know they are absolve it to uh, or hand it off to local government so I think that is the place where an awful lot of the action is going to take place. Really.
0: Anyone else got any thoughts? I know with um, you know with the NHS and with with healthcare, uh, healthcare is another major major uh, emitter, and it's often one that we don't think about as much. It, it can get left off uh, of conversations about sustainability, but particularly where we you know with hospitals, they are old, big, leaky buildings, mm-hmm. um, and they're a huge. You know, cost. I know we work with various hospitals, including the Homerton and, and others. There are huge cost savings to be found in putting in place some fairly basic um, sort of practices and indeed, you know, insulation and things like that we talked about earlier um, that, that bring benefits to those hospitals and cost savings and things. And so I know that in, in healthcare, it's being talked about more and more and more pharmaceutical industry being linked into that uh, is talking about it more and more. So I do think um Yeah, they're they're major um, sort of things. And and everywhere that we traveled on the Zero Carbon Tour, the places we saw the magic happening in terms of where there was clearly you know, strides being taken and and businesses were super engaged in it, were gaining access to funding, were gaining access to opportunities, were growing at a rapid rate. It was almost always where there was a really clearly close relationship between the businesses, the local councils, the local universities and colleges, um, and uh, the local enterprise partnerships, where you saw that sort of group of entities interacting very closely in particular, where the local councils were acting as a very proactive signpost of funding opportunities, of grants and things that people could tap into, where they were going right. There's this funding opportunity from from Bays or from uh, you know from one of, you know one of main you know, Innovate UK or one of the one of these pots, I'm looking and targeting businesses within the local area and saying, "We think you should go for this grant because you're perfect for it." particularly for SMEs we're often not looking <laughs> that, that well for funding and grant opportunities and the local councils had had a very strong role to play in that. Mm-hmm. Um, I think the public voice also can
3: you know one thing we haven't we haven't explicitly mentioned is the just transition
0: mm-hmm.
3: that you know obviously business is very concerned but ultimately it really is sort of government that needs to Ensure that 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 you know there aren't vast swathes of the, the society that are left behind, and you know practical things like we talked about charging points. Are they suitable for electric uh, for, for for disabled drivers? For co- you know, the, the, have we have we thought about that segment of the fleet, for example? And and you know, there's all sorts of examples, and and I think that's perhaps where public and private, but public really has a role to play to make sure that we, you know, that ultimately we do achieve that sort of just transition and don't leave swathes of society behind. Absolutely. Absolutely. And
1: kind of linked to that, I would highlight the role that the further education sector is going to play in exactly that, the just transition in meeting our net zero targets. I know there is a massive reskilling challenge here. We have it across the economy, but particularly in, in John alluded to this earlier, um, you know, how do we take the the skills that existing members of the workforce have and and do that into, for example, retrofitting houses and, and things like that. Um, colleges have always been at the forefront of the adult reskilling challenge. Um, there is some really good government work in this space, but a lot more is needed, particularly to support older workers, workers in um, less affluent areas, those who are at high risk of unemployment, to gain those skills to support the, the transition.
0: Yeah, uh, and a, a massive, massive role for ed- educational round, really, isn't it? Where, um, but but I, in particular, I know that... Um, visited uh, the Newbury Renewable Technology Centre, which again was funded by the Local Enterprise Partnership by the Thames Valley LEP. Um, and they had set up a, a you know, brand new centre looking at supporting the training of engineers and people because I think the, the stats they quoted to us was that currently there are around 2,000 qualified engineers who can install uh, air source or ground source heat pumps in the UK. And by 2030, we need 50,000. <laughs> huge growth huge opportunities there a bit like hgv drivers <laughs> yeah yeah so you know huge opportunity for skilled jobs um and you know the education sector's role in that will will, will certainly be massive um you anyway, i'm mindful of time so i want to sort of we might run a couple of minutes over here so but i wanted to sort of go go down sort of starting with alex up the top there around sort of wrap up thoughts or comments around you know what your any final thoughts on of the outcomes of this summit and what you know tomorrow. What should, you know, having, having tuned in today, what should leaders be doing tomorrow? And the final thing, uh, just one last question from John Cross here. Uh, if someone wants to work it into their answer, which is how soon do you anticipate improvements in modernizing legislation to support the route to net zero carbon? So, how, how fast do we think uh, legislation is going to start moving uh, now? That's an interesting question. But, Alex, you know, final sort of wrap up thoughts from you what you know and from, from the iod's perspective why is this so significant and what should leaders be doing tomorrow to prepare themselves for for the future
1: yes yeah, so i think i mean in terms of hot look i don't i don't think anyone would, would disagree that it was disappointing on many fronts um but i think what we would say is that where government has governments have failed um to To do enough, businesses will be able to step in. The role of, of state actors is going to be crucial in this transition. Um, so, rather than sort of leaving the you know the discussions around COP being feeling dejected, I would say there's a huge cause of optimism here. Um, if I were to think about what should be done tomorrow, I would say, as I mentioned earlier, please sign up for the uh, for the for the course that we're doing with the Royal Scottish Geographical Society. Um, and I think the key is just to start, like, like we said, there, there is low-hanging fruit. Um, you know, organizations like Planet Market are already doing great work in helping businesses to, to make this transition to understand what their carbon footprint is now and to make science-based um, sort of goals and targets uh, to, to move towards net zero. So I would say just, yeah, grab it and, and, and start anywhere.
2: Start anywhere, we like it. John? Uh, yeah, uh, just to answer the question that came from the audience, uh, don't wait for the government to deliver anything. Get on and do it yourself, uh, because you may be waiting a long time. On the other hand, they may suddenly spring something on you, so be prepared. Uh, but I think that's the the message from COP, I think, is, you know, after all, this is COP26. The process has been going on for about 30 years. So, you know, we don't have another 30 years to wait. We've got to get on and, and do things. And that's why, you know, the business and finance community was so visible at the COP. I've, I've got three takeaways, and they're really how I started this uh, this webinar. Get get ready for carbon pricing. Set, set a realistic, and by that I mean way higher than the current carbon traded price for your business and see what that means for what you do today and how you might change in the future. Get ready for data. Uh, That means get ready to uh, do the work, which means looking at your risks and opportunities in your business. The Task Force of Climate Related Financial disclosures will help you think that through uh, so that you're ready to disclose to investors and other stakeholders, whether they're regulators um, uh, or, or your customers, even, or maybe even the communities you live and work in, who want to know what it is you're doing. And then finally, you know, think about the the finance and the the risk sharing. You know, how how can you uh, finance your your business model to decarbonize uh, and get access to those really large sums of money that are out there wanting to go into low carbon business. Thank you, John. Julia,
3: um, I think. Uh, taking a slightly different angle, absolutely agreeing with what, what, what's been said, I think you know in the run up to COP26 we saw a lot of our members adopt a plan. There was a, a you know a, a very big uptake, and I think from a chapter zero perspective, it's very much now act upon that plan. So we're we're moving from the sort of the intent to 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 to, to the delivery, and I think this is where we're seeing boards um, really shift their, their 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 focus and their oversight. And I think on the point about government, I I thought that was a um, superb answer. And I think I just add that it's also incumbent on business to... Work with government. I know it's always it's been troubled and, and tested over the past few years, but this is so important that, that good regulation could make such a difference. And, and, I, and I think, you know, often business does understand and have insights and where that's you know supporting government and working with government is, is also incumbent on, on I, I think, sort of boards and, and, and business more broadly
0: absolutely um, I guess couldn't agree more uh, and that makes it very easy for me because I, I think you've basically said pretty much everything that I would I would say here it's, it's that start anywhere it's the understanding where you are and where you need to get to uh, and coming up with a plan in, in exactly the same way as you do for any other part of your business, whether it be your marketing strategy or, or whatever else, you come up with a plan and you enact that plan and, and you, you move it forward. Um, so the, the last thing I will sort of uh, share, if he gets a chance to let's figure this out, um, is uh, the, the Sustainable Business Hub on the IOD website. So um, if you uh, want to understand more, there is a whole system. The resources. You can find the course that that, um, uh, that Alex referred to uh, on the sustainable business hub, so iod.com forward slash sustainable business. That is where you can discover any events and, and initiatives happening across the whole of the iod community that relate to sustainability, both from an environmental perspective, which we've sort of focused on a lot today because of COP26 and, and sort of the, the, the laser focus on carbon with that, but also broader issues around sustainability in the social sustainability, the just transition um, and other other facets so i would encourage you to go there check that out tune into that as regularly as you as you can and there's resources and things on that that can help you to get started in, including i believe some signposting to some of the chat to zero uh, stuff which is fantastic um so um leaves me to say thank you very much to our, our panelists here today Thank you very much to everyone who tuned in and got engaged. We had people from the Isle of Man and all over the place, actually, uh, I saw coming in in the chat there. So we had a, a broad audience uh, of different sectors and different things. So hopefully that was useful. Um, it was quite high level and broad, uh, inevitably. And, uh, but in, in the coming weeks, there will be more, you'll, you know, there's more and more analysis coming out about the results of COP26 and what's going to happen. But the key message from here today seems to be get on and do it. And, and the, the leading role that businesses and organizations, both in the public and private sector, can play uh, in driving things forward at the pace that it needs to be driven forward. Um, In you know, sometimes in spite of how fast the legislators and uh, the 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 machinations of COP26 work itself. so thank you for tuning in. Uh, do get in touch with us. You can find contact details and stuff for the IOD Sustainable Business crew on the on the Sustainable Business uh, Hub. Other than that, thank you for tuning in and uh, we'll let everyone get on with the rest of their day. Thanks a lot, everybody. Cheers. We hope that you have enjoyed this Director's Briefing podcast. Please do subscribe to our channel to ensure that you are kept up to date on our future podcasts. You can find more information about our work on our website at iod.com forward slash news and on our LinkedIn and Twitter profiles. You can also contact us directly via policy-unit at iod.com.